morning. I'm so delighted to be here. My uh, wife that Tim mentioned earlier, Mariana, uh, really loves to come down here. It's been a while, but she was disappointed not to get to come. We have uh, a three-year-old, or one that will be three this summer, and, and a little boy that will be one this summer, and they um, didn't seem to be cooperating this morning. So we, uh, she sent me on uh, with, her, with her warm greetings, and um, she wishes she could be here. She particularly said to say hi to Tim because she remembers when he was uh, her youth director as well. So We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 9 this morning. You can be turning there. Uh, 2 Samuel 9, it's in the Old Testament. It's a story, uh, this will be an account of something that happened in the life of King David. Uh, as you're working your way there, I will uh, say that I am... Uh, also very excited to be here because I'm, uh, as Tim said, a member of this presbytery and I uh, and, am, in a sense, a missionary, the arm of the local church to the college campus at Southern Miss. That's what RUF, uh, Reform University Fellowship, does. That's who we are. And so in, uh, in that sense, we are, uh, I am representing you to that campus and there are obviously uh, representatives of, of um, various presbyteries on the other college campuses in our state and around the world. And, and I'm very thankful to have uh, you uh, as a sending uh, group, Grace Presbytery, and I am uh, very thankful to have you praying for and supporting us there. So uh, thank you for, for all that you do for, for that ministry, and we do uh, covet your prayers, not only here but also uh, on the other campuses, particularly where you will be sending uh, your children. Second Samuel chapter 9 is, is our text this morning. We're going to look at a very interesting passage from the life of of David, King David, his character was mentioned probably second only to Jesus in the Bible. Uh, he, he's mentioned a lot. God tells us a lot about David in his word. He's certainly an important character. And our inclination as we study the Old Testament is often to hold up these Bible heroes and, and we tend to look at them and, and say, okay, how can I be more like David? How can I be more like Daniel or Abraham or Noah or someone like that, but I want us to be careful not to do that this morning and, and, and always when we read the Old Testament because the most important thing we can do as we study Scripture is to look and say, how does this point me to uh, Jesus? How does this prepare me to see and recognize and appreciate Jesus? Among the many things you can learn as you study about David and the life of David and the Scripture that's dealing with David... There's plenty of things we can learn, but, but I want to encourage you, and, and if we were doing a whole series on David, and I was going to be with you for months and months, we would say this every week, but when you look at the life of David, I think that you can learn three things. When you see David, uh, we see David in Scripture from his teenage years all the way through his life and his ups and downs all the way up, up until his death. We see David... Uh, as he grows up, and I think when we read about David, we can say to ourselves and ask ourselves, how does this passage help me uh, grow up? Because it shows us a man who lives his life uh, before God, and we see God's faithfulness to him. And, and also when we read about David, we know that he is an ancestor of, he's a forerunner to Jesus. right? And so when we study David, it prepares us to see Jesus. It prepares us to recognize Jesus, a new uh, and better king. But we also look at David. Another thing that David, we can notice when we study the life of David in the Old and New Testament, David is described as being a man after God's own heart. And that can mean 
Uh, we could dig deep down to what, what all that means, but, but one of the primary and most helpful and exciting things that it means that David is a man after God's own heart is that when we look at the life of David in Scripture, we can see something of the heart of God. Right? God reveals His heart to us in His Word, much like a love letter to a waiting bride. And in David's life, a man after God's own heart, we get to see David in his finest moments. We get to see in David the very heart of God. So when we read about David, we can say, what does this passage tell me about God's heart? And that's where I want us to focus this morning. We can think about how this passage helps us grow up. We can think about how it points us to Jesus a new and better king. And we can think about how it shows us God's heart. This is one of those moments in Scripture that we're going to read this morning. It's it's a feel-good story. It's such a feel-good story that it makes uh, Presbyterians like myself, you know, a little uncomfortable sometimes. We, we, We get a little worried when it starts to, when we start to feel good and emotional and excited about something we see or hear or experience. But this morning we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter Nine, I'll begin reading in verse 1. This is God's word for us, so let's give attention to it. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David. And he fell on his face, and he paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and he said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house also became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. Let me pray before we consider it together this morning. Father, we need your help to soften our hearts to open our ears and to prepare our souls to hear what it is that you want us to know from your word about your love for us and about your desire for our lives. And I pray, God, that by your Holy Spirit you would do that this morning. Draw our attention to you for your glory, for the good of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to think about 
three things from this passage that, that help us see God's heart in this episode in David's life. The first thing I want us to think about is this, that, that David shows, in verses 1 to 3, we see that David shows covenant kindness. David, the, the king, the king of Jerusalem, uh, the king of Israel living in Jerusalem, ha, has come to a place of political and, and military and popular success. Okay, within, with, with the hand of God clearly with David... He's gained military victories. He brought the Ark of, Jerus- uh, Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem so that, he, that the people can appropriately worship God there. Um, he, he has uh, uh, done everything right and people have appreciated it. He hasn't done everything right, but he, he has gained their trust and, and, and the people uh, love David. We see this idea that, that's, that David is committed to, that, that, he, um, that he wants to establish God's uh, presence and the right worship of God in Jerusalem. In fact, David asked God if he might even build a, a temple for God to be worshipped there, and God says, no, that's not for you to do, he, he, that's for someone coming after you, and so he doesn't. But God reminds David of his covenant faithfulness to David. And as David sort of believes that God is faithful to him, he's reminded of his own covenant relationships. You might recall, if you're familiar with the story of David, that David had been chosen by God to replace Saul as king. And Saul had a son named Jonathan. And Jonathan and David basically, uh, just by the nature of their relationship, became rival heirs to the same throne. Jonathan was the son of the king, and David was the man that God had chosen to be king, and so there was naturally this place in which they were at odds with each other, but they were best friends. And so they made a covenant with each other that they would look after each other and that they would care for each other for years to come, even, even caring for each other's family if something was to happen to one of them. Right? They, they sensed the direction that their family lines were going. Saul was king. His children would be expected to be kings. But God had chosen David to be the next king. And Jonathan laid down his place in front of David. He he met with David and he he took off his robe, his kingly robe, and he basically said to David, "I, I recognize that you're going to be king and I'm making a covenant that I will serve you and David made a covenant with him that he would serve him, that they would look after each other. Our text this morning finds us later in the story. Saul, the king, is dead. And in fact, Jonathan, his son, is dead as well. And David is on the throne, just as Jonathan had expected. And just as he had anticipated when he gave up his robe to David. But David says something important in our text this morning. He asks if there is anyone in Saul's family to whom he can show kindness. The word that is used in the Hebrew is hesed. It's actually a word that gets translated a bunch of different ways in our Bibles. We, we have it translated several different ways. Sometimes it's translated as kindness. Sometimes it's translated as loving kindness. Sometimes it's translated as steadfast love. You know, all these really uh, enduring love, all these sort of Bible words. Uh, that we're sort of familiar with. 
They all come from this word hesed. And that's what David says here. The word means love or kindness, but it carries with it this idea of covenant faithfulness. That he loves to, to love someone because of your commitment to them. And David's desire here in this text, as he said, is there anyone to whom I can show kindness? He actually says it again. He reiterates it and says, to whom I can show God's kindness. He's not showing just affection. He's not just wanting to help out. He's not having sympathy. He's not feeling obligation or trying to sort of assuage his own guilt. He was wanting to show a very specific kind of love to someone for someone else's sake. He wants to show God's kindness. God reveals His heart to us in the life of David by showing us that David delights to show kindness, to show faithful love, enduring and meaningful, committed kindness based on a covenant relationship, based on a commitment. And and to love someone for the sake of another is part of covenant kindness. To love someone for the sake of another is, is something that we see in the heart of God. First thing I want us to know is that David shows covenant kindness. The second thing is that David loves his enemy. Right? As I mentioned earlier, and you may remember from the story of David, David had become king after the death of Saul. And Saul would have had plenty of offspring who, who could have made trouble for David down the line. Right, if the political tides would have shifted, if they had become rocky at all in the future, there, things could have become bad for David if there was a bunch of people out there who were descendants of Saul. And I think Jonathan and David probably both sensed that when they made this covenant years before. If you remember anything about studying world history uh, growing up or, or in school, especially ancient hi- history, you'll know that potential threats to the throne are not often abided very long. Right? What what would often happen is that a king, upon establishing some sense of stability or or favor, once he established some sense of momentum and political favor and popularity with the people, something would happen, whether he sort of uh, rubber-stamped it or not, people trying to get in good with the king or people that the king had sort of uh, authorized to do this would go out and find heirs, potential heirs to the former dynasty and basically eliminate them. That would have made sense to a lot of people. It's sort of like using your political capital to, to, to buy uh, dynasty insurance, so to speak. Right to know that something that you would do for your children, but also that you would do for the stability of the nation to sort of say, all right, we've got a good thing going here. Let's make sure down the road that it doesn't get all churned up. It would have made sense for David to do that. He could have sent folks out to sort of pick the weeds of potential challengers to the throne before they became a real issue. And whether that kind of activity was authorized by a king or not, it happened. But David doesn't do that. Right? We see this in the movies a lot of times. And and to use an example of... The the movies uh, like The Godfather, movies, mobster movies, they hold this this grip on the American uh, culture. For some reason, people just like them. 
right? The movies like The Godfather is regularly voted as one of the greatest movies of all time. Every year in, in December, they come out with this new list, and The Godfather is always in the top ten or so lists of greatest movies. I think that one of the reasons that it captures people's, and I'm not endorsing this movie, I'm not saying you should all go out and watch it. It's certainly some very sensitive stuff in there that, that we wouldn't all be able to handle, but what happens in mobster movies is this. A second-rate sort of uh, goofball, second-rate underling of the crime world sort of falls backwards into a position where he's able to do something to establish some power for himself. And all of a sudden, he finds himself in front of the, the big in-charge head guy, the godfather, the mob boss, the man that's in charge, and this sort of goon, second-rate guy looks up and, and he realizes that he's done something that he shouldn't have done, but he didn't do anything that, that anybody else would have not done, but, but here he is, and you're hoping that he'll get off, that he, that he won't... Uh, suffer the wrath of, of the big crime boss. You're hoping that something will happen that, that he'll let him off. Um, and I think the reason that these movies just grip and hold our attention is this. It never happens. He, he always gets eliminated. He always gets taken out of the picture. He always gets taken care of, dealt with, killed. And we always want him to make it, and he never does. Right? There's this absence of mercy that just draws us in. David doesn't do that. David shows kindness and mercy here. here. This is what's even more amazing about David's kindness. Lest we think this is a political move, right? when this pitiful character, Mephibosheth, comes into the scene, David confirms the source of his kindness. Right? If David had been politically motivated and the only surviving threat to his throne was this obscure, pitiful, crippled guy, it seems very well that David may have said to him, as sort of like we would do in Mississippi, look at him and say, Hey man, I knew your daddy when we were in high school and I'm sorry about what happened to him. Why don't we find a place for you to work for us here. Right? Hey, I'm, I'm sorry about your feet. I'm sorry about that. Maybe we can find something for you. Maybe we'll, ta- we'll, we'll kind of take care of you. No, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't look and realize, oh, this is it. It's, it's ju- this is the only potential competitor with the throne. This guy's crippled. Like he's, I'll just kind of keep your friends close and your enemies closer. He doesn't do that. It wasn't like this impressive, strapping young man that, that could have easily garnered popularity and, and, and mounted an, offen- uh, uh, an attack on David's popularity. That's not who Mephibosheth was. The text tells us repeatedly that Mephibosheth was lame in both feet. But David, the only thing that Mephibosheth could have done to be a threat to David was to get some kind of power and to be able to go have a family of his own and, and to sort of create some momentum. And what's David do? He gives him that exactly. He says, everything that belonged to your grandfather is yours. Every, everyone that works for your grandfather is going to work for you. You can have a place. You can have influence. You can have 
uh, uh, farms and produce. You will survive. You will thrive. You can have a family. He gives them all of that. He does this because David, being a man after God's own heart, understands covenant faithfulness. He understands kindness. And he understands what it means to be adopted by God. David understands adoption. We, as Christians and and Presbyterians, in fact, all of us, we love to think about our salvation in terms of sort of the mechanics of our salvation, right? That God, uh, that Jesus' blood pays for my sin and therefore I'm forgiven and therefore I have salvation and eternal life and and, and because of that I will seek to obey and to grow. Um, And those are all wonderful things that I love. But another thing that we celebrate as a Christian is we're God's children. The last thing I want us to see about understanding the heart of God is that in David's life is that David understands adoption. We're drawn in to this story and we see that David doesn't just throw Mephibosheth a bone. He doesn't just sort of keep an eye on him. In so many words, he, he basically says, you are going to be like my son in every sense of the word. The Westminster Confession and the Shorter and Larger Catechisms describe adoption as, as an act of God's free grace whereby we're received into the number and we have the right to all the privileges of the sons of God. David knows what it means to be to have God as his father. The larger catechism says, by which we're taken into the number, we enjoy the liberties and the privileges of the children of God. We have our, his name put on us. We receive the spirit of adoption. We have access to the throne with boldness. We're enabled to cry, Abba, Father. It says we're pitied, protected, provided for, chastened by him as father, yet never cast off, but sealed for the day of redemption to inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Here's what's great about this story in the life of David. He gets adoption, and he draws our attention to it, so much so that when we find ourselves exhausted, utterly aware of our lameness, utterly aware of our insufficiency, in the presence of God, in in His throne room, so to speak, God wants us to know this about Himself that He adopts us as His children. He doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't just sort of with His arms crossed say, okay, get in here. No, He he delights in you. He wants you to be well. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to have what He has. Not only does He make us His children, preventing us from being orphans, our adoption distinguishes us from being a slave. Paul tells us that several times. Part of what it means to be a child of God is that you're no longer a slave. In Galatians, he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. It goes on to say, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we're sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God. Do you notice what Mephibosheth said to David when he found himself on the floor of the throne room, he said, I'm your servant. He would later say, 
identify himself as a dead dog. Right? While David could have dialed back his offer when he realized how pitiful Mephibosheth was, he didn't. He adopted him. He made him his son. Think about this. Mephibosheth's entire life had been defined by enmity with David, King David. Right? Scripture tells us early in 2 Samuel that, that Mephibosheth had been dropped by his nurse. Why had, been, why had he been dropped by his nurse and broken his feet? Because he was, they were running from raiders who were probably coming to kill him because he was Saul's grandson. Right? So, so people were... Had, the very day that he had lost the use of his feet was because he was a potential threat to David in somebody's mind. That's why his feet were broken. So every day that he didn't walk well, every day that he couldn't move... He had this base note, this reality in his life that I am the way that I am because I was a threat to David. I am broken because of that. I cannot, if I, and knowing that if he ever found himself in the presence of the king, the king very well may just finish the job. His whole life, his crippled feet, all had to do with the fact that he was an enemy of David's. His whole life could have been characterized by resentment and fear and anxiety. What's going to happen when I find myself in David's presence? And Mephibosheth fearfully says to David, I'm your servant. Let me get this out there first. I'm your servant. That's how we respond to God so often. Think about in the New Testament when the prodigal son is planning how he's going to come back and see the Father. He says, okay, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to say, look, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I just want to work for you. I just want to be your servant. I just want to be here. I'll stay out of the way. Just, I'm your servant. He wants to define his relationship to his Father. Mephibosheth wants to say right out of the chute, look, I'm your servant. And David says, no. You're going to be like my son. There's a difference between relating to a God that you see as just about to finish the job and wipe you out, a God that you can never please, that you can never fix your relationship with, and relating to a God that says, you are my child. We become obsessed with making our place with God make sense. If you have ever seen the movie Cinderella Man, it's about uh, a Depression-era heavyweight boxer uh, played, by, uh, played by the guy who played Noah, and he's the biggest actor ever. I'll come up with his name in a second. Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe uh, is, a, is a heavyweight fighter in Depression-era New York City, and, and his ch- he has children, and he's a wonderful family man, and as the story goes, uh, children in the area are being sent off to live in the country with their families because it's difficult to support a family in New York City during the, during the Depression. So children are being sent off to live with their aunts and uncles who live out in the country and where they can sort of have room to grow their own food and all of this stuff. The Depression is very difficult. And John, uh, John Braddock, this heavyweight fighter who's broken his hand, he can't fight, he's looking for work all the time. Um, he comes home from work one day and he finds out that one of his children, his oldest son, Jay had stolen from the butcher. 
He had stolen some salami from the butcher and, and, and Braddock takes his son back to the butcher and he, and he says, you're going to return uh, this salami. You don't see him say this in the movie. You see him return the salami. You see the boy and his father walk out of the shop and, and Braddock looks at his son and he, and he says, what you did was stealing. And the son nods and he says, and stealing is wrong. We don't steal. And the boy looks at his dad and you can see the emotion coming over his face. He says, can I have your word? And he said, yes, sir. And he said, he said tell me. And he said, I promise. And, the dad, and, and, and Braddock looks at his son and he says, and I will never send you away. You see why the, the boy had stolen the salami because he was certain that if he became too big of a burden to his parents, they'd send him away. And he didn't want to be away from his dad and his mom and his brothers and his sisters. And he thought, if I can steal the salami, I won't be a burden to my parents. They won't send me away. And Braddock looks at his son, and he says something about his identity. He says, we don't steal. You're my son. We don't steal. And you get the sense, you almost get the sense that he's, he's, he's bargaining with him. He's negotiating with him, right? The way that we think God does with us. He, we think that God says, look, as long as you don't do all these things, I won't send you away. But that's not what's happening in this story. Braddock looks at his son and he says, we don't steal and I will never send you away. He doesn't say, if you won't steal anymore, I won't send you away. He says, as long as you're a good boy, I won't send you away. He says, we don't steal, I will never send you away. To the, de the degree to which that boy or any of us goes on in our life and, and, and doesn't steal or, or behaves or, or is obedient... It's not because this boy ever thought that his dad would send him away. It's because he told him that he wouldn't. Right? He knew from that moment forward that he didn't have to steal. He didn't have to define his relationship to his dad. His dad said, I will never send you away. And when he reaches out to shake hands with the boy as if they were making a deal, a commitment, a covenant, the boy jumps in his arms and he carries him home. Until we begin to realize that that's our relationship to God as a father to a son, our obedience will, won't reflect that of the joy that's available to us. We want to be known to God as slaves. We want Him to, but we think, because that's manageable for us. Like, as long as I do this, He'll love me. As long as I do this, He'll love me. As long as I do this, He'll love me. And that's going to drive us either to pride thinking that God loves us because we're good folks, or will lead us to despair, thinking He could never take me back. God loves us and makes us as His children, and that defines the relationship. If our salvation begins to make sense to us, we've lost the beauty of it. I was going to... I know that Tim has been preaching on the life of Abraham. I, I thought about doing that this morning. When Abraham and, and Sarah had their son, they named him Isaac, because God said, name him Isaac, which means laughter. In fact, God said, when I told you you were going to have a son, Sarah, you laughed. And Sarah said, I didn't laugh. And he said, yes, you did. It's so funny that she responded to God that way. He, he wanted his name to be laughter because he wanted them for the rest of their life when they thought about the fact that God fulfills promises to them. They could only laugh and say, I don't know. And if our salvation, if our salvation doesn't 
regularly make us look around and be like, I don't know. That's just, that's just the way God is. David shows it to us right here. This is what the love of God looks like, restoring and giving back. So much so that years down the road, Mephibosheth could have looked around at all that he had and just been like, that's the way that David loved me. Because that's the way that David loves my grandfather because, and my dad, because that's the way that God loves David. Our obedience, our love, our view of God's sovereignty and His provision has to be wrapped up in our knowing Him as a perfect and loving Father. And that's hard for some of us because we have messy relationships with our dads. But we know what it's supposed to be like and that's what God is. And I'll close with this idea. The, God, the story of Mephibosheth is the gospel story that we get to experience because God seeks out, our, the hev- Heavenly Father seeks out descendants of an ancient king, descendants who were permanently crippled by a fall. Right? And when, and when they or when we are flung on the floor of his throne room, he doesn't shame us or destroy us. He sets about restoring us to our royal heritage. And, and in doing that, says that he, in this story, David feeds Mephibosheth from his table during the whole process. He doesn't even let him go be with his family. He says, no, I want you to be here as if you're one of my children. The heart of God is for the adoption of his children, that they might become his children through the blood of Jesus. Those of us who by faith in Christ have been made the children of God have seats at the king's table. God restores us to himself, the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus, our perfect older brother, and he feeds us with his word. And his witness bears witness with our... His spirit bears witness with our spirit. And he calls us to his table to eat with him. And and that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's pray.